The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. In this edition of the Ellis Martin Report, travel with me to British Columbia as I attended the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Listen to interviews there with the silver guru, David Morgan, David Duval, special advisor to regular guest Jim Sinclair of JSMindset.com, Len Brownlee of Gold Rush Resources, exploring for gold in Burkina Faso, Africa, and Scott Drever of Silvercrest Mines, a silver and gold producer in Sonora State, Mexico. Among other guests, I'll speak with Apogee Silver's Neil Ringdahl from Lima, Peru, Ian Chalmers with Alcane Resources on the phone from New Southwest Australia, and metals expert Dudley Baker. Let's begin the program. This is Ellis Martin. I'm reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, and I'm here with my good friend and compadre. I can only wish to have at least 25% of his wisdom, David Morgan from silver-investor.com, the silver guru. Welcome to the program. Alice, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Why are we so exuberant to be here besides seeing each other? Well, you know, it's interesting is this is the largest show that I've seen so far in the January Cambridge House events. And I've been coming here for about 10, 12 years as a speaker, but I also started coming to these as an investor back in my uh, 20s. And this thing is by and large the largest event I have seen so far. So what that means is this sector is ready for the next leg up. All markets move on volume. We've got more interested parties now. Some of these people are brand new to the sector. I think you're going to see the next leg up. Is that going to start in February 2012? Probably not. But the foundation has been built, and you're going to see more and more people coming into the sector. This is proof of that, and therefore I'm looking for positive things for the commodities in general, and particularly the precious metals, over the next few years. Now, you and I maybe know something that a lot of these companies don't, because I'm getting questions from some of these folks. Is Do you see any traction in the sector? you think now's the right time for exposure with a network like ours? And I'm just feeling what you're feeling is like, we seem to know. We seem to know that 2013, 2014, the tipping point may occur, and that's just a complete game changer. And it's a contrarian. The, the time to get in is when most of the retail public is not looking, and they're really not like they're going to be. I agree. I think that uh, you got to stay ahead of the curve. You know, you hear that expression often. But if you are in a space that you need to get some exposure, I think really you should take a hard look at uh, what's open to you. And you know what you do, Ellis, I think you built a brand. I think a lot of people that are well-known in the industry, such as Jim Sinclair, do uh, interviews quite often. I do some uh, with you, you know, fairly often. I'm infrequent. As you know, my travel schedule is very demanding. But I think that's something that I would recommend. I know that it certainly helped build uh, my brand and my business by being on the Ellis Martin Show. You're very, very kind, David. Thank you. You're an investor. In addition to being a silver guru and teaching a lot of us, about the space. Are you finding some potential investment opportunities? What are you looking for personally at this show? Well, 
as normal, I actually like to revisit all the companies that we have, you know, that are current on the list for the Morgan Report members. That's the members only portion of the website where you actually pay us for our best thinking. On top of that, of course, we're always looking for deals. And I actually had one this morning that I was pitched and it actually looks pretty good. Now, I am very conservative. I just don't jump at any and everything that's out there. I'm not suggesting that anybody does that. Regardless, uh, I'd rather be right than fast. So we usually find like three, four, or five in an event like this. Usually narrow it down to maybe one or two, and then usually get it down to one or two, and then we will probably put some kind of a write-up on it. But uh, I'd rather be very conservative and as accurate as possible than just to you know go on any story that sounds great and. There's a lot of story stocks here. There always will be. It's part of the environment. I don't mind it. But uh, you really want to look into the market as deeply as you can with facts. Facts are metal. How much metal in the ground? Or if it's a potash company, whatever the commodity happens to be. But that's what you really want to drill down to. On the exploration side, that's an impossible thing to do. So I like to find situations that actually have uh, 43-101 in most cases, not all, and substantive information that we can start digging into the data and make an evaluation upon. What are some of your subscribers that I know you're running into everywhere you go? What are they What are they saying to you? Well, they're saying thanks for uh, one of the recommendations I made last year that tripled, and very few other newsletter writers can say that they had a pick that tripled this year. Most people are down. There's another one that we've had on the list in the top tier category that we rewrote and did a, I'd say, very excellent job. Excuse my uh, ego, but we did a lot of hard work. And this is a 60-something dollar stock that was undervalued. We proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's back up to 78. So there's been a couple that we have done extremely well with, even in this environment. We have another one that's on the speculative side that I think is a target to be taken out. I mean, it's just sitting there next to mid-tier company that's very successful, and these guys have got the goods. So, again, no one in this business is perfect, but it does take work, and work usually pays off, and I think that's where we're at, and we'll continue to do that for our members. Well, you're pretty obsessive, if you don't mind me saying. You get up in the morning, and you go right into your computer, and you're doing research probably from the time you're awake until the time you go to sleep and saying hello to your family as you can. Isn't that right? <laughs> pretty close. I was supposed to be at this conference a day early, and the flight was canceled. And so I had like a 24-hour window that I wasn't really scheduled to do anything. I'm driving home, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, i got a snow day. I'm going to play. And then the thought hits, well, I actually wrote that article for another prominent newsletter writer, but I haven't proofed it yet. I'll open that up, and I'll proofread that, and I'll send it to my wordsmith person, and I'll send it on. That's all I'll do. Well, that was my first initial thought. About 7 p.m. that night, I came up for air and said, geez, I've been sitting here all day working as usual. Well, David, it's a pleasure to uh, to see you and visit with you, and thank you for the kind words. I look forward to a prosperous year for all of us in the sector and all of your subscribers and all of our listeners from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, the Silver Guru, David Morgan, themorganreport.com, silver-investor.com. Thanks for joining us today on the Ellis Martin Report. Thanks so much, Ellis. Get out your crayons and write this down, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin, once again reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in beautiful Vancouver, 
British Columbia, Canada, and I'm sitting here with one of our sponsor companies, Gold Rush Resources, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GOD.V, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, just type in GDRRF. I'm with Len Brownlee, the president of Gold Rush. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Ellis. Uh, thanks for having me on the program again. Now, you're focused on gold exploration in Burkina Faso, West Africa. You were there in December, I believe. And let's talk about Burkina Faso. Why is that so fascinating? Uh, Burkina Faso is probably the best place in the world right now to be doing gold exploration. Uh, many people have heard of the gold exploration being conducted in the Yukon Territory in Canada. The problem there is it's only about a three-month field season. Burkina has an 11-month field season. There have been six new mines opened in the last five years, with another four mines that will probably be opened here in the next two to three years. It's very underexplored. It has great geology and just a wonderful place to work. So by field season of 11 months, you mean there's basically no time, with the exception of one month, that you're shut down? Well, and that's variable. Uh, In the north of the country, it's probably less than a month. In the south of the country, closer to the equator, uh, they do have a a bit longer rainy season. Last year, we drilled right through the rainy season on some of our projects because the rains really didn't affect us. Some areas do, however, get a little bit more rain, and there you're looking at probably one month to a maximum of two months that uh, you'd be shut down. Now, Burkina Faso is in West Africa, which is a very prolific area for gold mining. Let's educate our new listeners and enlighten them as to why that's true. Burkina Faso was underexplored historically. It was sort of left alone. It was a former French colony, totally landlocked, a very poor country on the United Nations Development Index, and it just didn't see a lot of exploration. But that didn't mean it didn't have a lot of potential. The amount of greenstone belts, which is one measure of the prospectivity of an area, uh, is higher there than it is in Ghana, Mali, or Niger, and certainly those countries have received much more exploration focus by international companies. Now, that has changed now over the last, say, 10 years, and there have been more and more companies coming into Burkina, and they've been having wonderful exploration success. If you look at Western Australia or the Yukon, the exploration costs per ounce of gold are somewhere around $150 an ounce. In Burkina, they're more likely 10 to $15 an ounce. And, and so it, you just get a lot more bang for your buck as an explorer in looking for gold in Burkina because it's much easier to find and there's been fewer eyes looking on the ground for it. So it's a much more prospective place to be than pretty much anywhere else in West Africa. Now, last time we talked, you had alluded to some potential news coming out in a few weeks. Well, those few weeks have come by. This just came out a few days ago. You intersected 8.77 grams per ton of gold over 23 meters and 8.34 grams per ton of gold over 6 meters in fill-in drilling at your flagship Ranjin gold deposit. Yeah, that's right. We're very, very pleased with those results. Early stage, to some extent, we are in-fill drilling and looking to update our resource estimate sort of end of the first quarter. So this was infill drilling, but it was also deeper and in areas where we had very little coverage previously. And although interpretation isn't uh, precise at this point, it does look like we've uncovered a cross fault with a deeper lens of higher grade gold. I mean, that 8.7 grams is about a quarter ounce gold. Typical grades in Burkina are on the order of one and a half to two grams. So to get 8.7 gram material is very encouraging. And we still have about 58 holes 
to announce from the program that we conducted at Rongen. We also have 13 trenches just completed there and results from those. And on top of that, we have another four permits with drill results pending where we think we've at least on one of them, have really uncovered something quite remarkable. Now, compared to your peers, you may be dramatically undervalued, and this is the type of company that many investors get into, potentially, when they're looking for that three or four or five or ten banger. They want to find a company that's under a dollar, or in your case, under 30 cents, so that they can hang in for the long term and see some real gains, especially when you're compared to some of the peers that exist in that area. I would like to think that Gold Rush would be a very attractive investment at this point. We have an excellent exploration team that has been put in place over the last year or so. They have between them 15 to 17 years each, I guess, experience. Our chief geologist, John Learn, has five discoveries in Burkina Faso to his name. Our VP corporate development and our VP exploration are also very experienced guys with discoveries to their name. We have a crew of 45 geologists and support workers in Burkina with a fully staffed office. So we're in really good shape in terms of exploration potential and the ability to find gold. We have reasonable capitalization at this point. We've got just so many good projects that we're drilling or have just drilled. So there's really a pipeline of exploration potential, not just one project not just a couple of guys. So I'd like to think that that sort of scenario would be attractive to investors because it's more than a one-shot deal. We're going to do well with Rongun. We think that'll become a, a mine at some point. Then as well, we have a pipeline of projects all the way from grassroots to farther advanced. This company is not necessarily new in the business, is it? The original company that is now called Gold Rush was incorporated in 1966, and as is the case in in the resource industry, sometimes they go through some transformations over the years depending on market cycles. Gold Rush itself has been in Burkina Faso for six years and is actually one of the elder statesmen of companies in that country. It was sort of part of the first wave, I guess, of exploration companies into the country that began conducting modern exploration there, and that was about 2006. Yeah, an old company, and then relatively experienced with regard to Burkina. Subsequent to that, there's been at least two or three waves of exploration companies from Australia and Canada who have come to, to Burkina and are picking up the third and fourth level permits. We think we've got some of the best permits in the country at this point. Let's look ahead a year or two. What are your plans for the company? Number one, to advance the Rongwin deposit to the feasibility stage and take it through feasibility with the concept being that we'd like to have a going concern mining operation, open pit heap leach mining operation at Rongen. And number two, to advance as many of our other targets as possible to a more advanced state, whether it be pre-feasibility or feasibility. And these things will take two to three years, but the prospectivity of the ground there and the ease in finding gold is such that it's not improbable or impractical for that sort of timeline to be followed. So those are our two main objectives. And I think along the way, as we demonstrate more ounces in the ground and partnerships with larger companies, etc., these will be the sorts of milestones that should lead to an increase in share value. And that's ultimately what our goal is for our shareholders, to give them the best value possible. Well, Len, we certainly do appreciate you being a sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Let's look for some more developments from you in the future. Thank you very much for joining us today in the program. Thanks very much, Ellis, for the opportunity. We look forward to some good news coming out in the next month. I've been speaking with Len Brownlee 
Finley, the president of Gold Rush Resources. Gold Rush trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GOD and in the U.S. on the OTCQX. Just type in GDRRF or you can find them on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. David Duval is a 40-year veteran of the Canadian minerals industry. He served a decade as Western editor for the largest weekly mining publication in the world before forming his own consulting company in 1990. As a technical advisor to the United Nations and Royal Government of Thailand, he coordinated the feasibility study for the $500 million Association of Southeast Asian Nations Potash Project in Thailand. Mr. Duval is a recognized authority on the Canadian diamond industry, having co-authored New Frontiers in Mining in 1996. David serves as special advisor to Jim Sinclair, the president and CEO of sponsor company Tanzanian Royalty, trading on the New York Stock Exchange as TRX. Tanzanian Royalty is developing an advanced stage gold project in Tanzania in partnership with the state mining corporation of that country. David and Mr. Sinclair co-founded the online newsletter JSMindset.com in 2003, which offers free commentary on gold and currency markets and is a traffic leader in its market segment. I recently had the pleasure of visiting with him at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. David, welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. Thank you for having me, Ellis. Give us a little bit more information on your background before we begin, if you don't mind, David. Well, I've been in the mining industry now for about 40 years. I'm currently uh, acting as a special advisor to the president of Tanzanian Royalty, uh, Jim Sinclair. I worked as a technical advisor to the United Nations in Thailand. I've also authored a book on diamonds. I'm considered, I suppose, an authority on the uh, Canadian diamond industry. I do provide a bit of technical sort of related consulting to uh, different companies, primarily Tanzanian Royalty, of course, whose principal asset in Tanzania is the Buck Reef Gold Project. Now let's talk about gold as a speculative commodity. Is it a supply and demand issue like silver is, or is gold purely about a hedge against currency? And we've talked about this before with Jim. What's your take on it? Well, it's really all of the above, really. I tend to come at it more from a supply and demand sort of side. You know, we're seeing tremendous demand from uh, China. Chinese consumption has been growing sort of uh, exponentially, almost quarter by quarter. And of course, you've got over one, whatever, 0.3 billion people there and a similar amount in India, where it's very much a cultural thing there. That certainly is going to, I think, at least underpin the gold price. And the speculative aspect of gold in the marketplace, of course, uh, will obviously contribute to uh, boosting prices, I think, substantially higher than we see them now, uh, certainly by year end. I just really genuinely and you believe this gold market is going to be a lot better than most people think by the end of the year. I think a lot of this euro sort of situation has been factored into the gold price. And obviously, these countries in the eurozone have a vested interest in, you know, not seeing a country like Greece sort of default on their debt. I'm hopeful that we're going to see a resolution of that particular issue probably in the next few weeks or a month or so. I think this gold market is going to be a lot better than most people think in 2012. Now, the things that you mentioned, Greece, the euro, a hedge against inflation that we've talked about with him over the past few weeks. That does move the metal, but still the main story is about supply and demand and an eventual tipping point that at some point will bring everybody into the sector. Well, it's certainly a part of the story. It's not the main part of the story. You know, you look at companies like uh, Barrick, for example, which is the largest gold producer in the world. You know, they're producing over whatever, 8 million ounces a year. For them to replace the resources that they have depleted by mining, they would have to find about a 10 million ounce gold deposit every year. 
And the fact is, you don't hear of too many. I, I don't remember the last time I heard of a 10 million ounce gold discovery. So last year, Barrick purchased a company on the open market called Equinox, and that will give them some copper production in Africa. So I, I think that tells you something about the ability of companies to replace resources. And uh, companies, I think uh, gold companies, you may see a lot of them trying to sort of diversify to uh, ensure or at least maintain profitability in the future. Barrick was always seen as a pure gold company, so that's quite a diversification for them to see them get involved in a copper sort of situation. And in fact, that did actually affect their share price negatively for some time after that, and I don't think they've really fully recovered from it, but uh, I think they will eventually. We have a very, very fickle market. Will it remain that way? Well, the market is always fickle, at least in my experience, and, and the gold market tends to be quite volatile, not just the gold price, but of course the gold equities as well. They follow any weakness in the gold price. The gold market is really not for the faint of heart. I've been in it for a long time. I've gone through many of these cycles, and you've really got to be in it for the longer term. I'm talking two to three years. But the bottom line, there's tremendous upside in the gold market. This bull market has been underway for about 10 years now, and if it ended now, it would be the shortest bull market in history. I think it's got another decade to go, and possibly it will go longer than that. You'll have some periods when the gold price will get hit, the gold equities will get hit. That's just the way the market operates, and there's not too much you can do you know, about it. It can be a little depressing to see your portfolio get whacked about 30% over a period in about a month. This is really not unusual. It is a bit sort of unnerving for most people, and uh, I guess the, the success I've had in dealing with it has really involved me not looking at my portfolio for about a month. Not everybody can do that. They seem to want to follow every tick in the marketplace, and I think that would drive any a normal person sort of insane, and I, so I try to avoid that anyway. Well, that puts a lot of hurt on some of these junior mining companies when they experience such a severe pullback or depression like that. You mentioned Barrick not having enough supply for the demand. That would lead me to think that some of these juniors might be good takeover candidates for a consolidation with companies like Goldcore or Barrick coming in and saying, you know what, we can use your assets. Well, that's really the way the industry has operated as long as I've been in it. The major companies, typically, their forte is not really on the expiration end of it. Their forte is on the production side of it. You know, historically, uh, the major companies have purchased gold resources from uh, junior to sort of intermediate-sized companies. Uh, These companies could be producing companies or they could be companies with 43-101 compliant gold resources in the ground. You know, really bona fide resources that have possibly a feasibility sort of uh, attached to them and you know, from an economic standpoint, looks sort of attractive. I think what will happen as this gold market sort of unfolds, you will find a lot of the major companies catching a bid because they have production leverage to gold prices. Then you will see the market feed a little further down the feed chain to the uh, companies, uh, the smaller gold producers, and the companies that have resources in the ground that do have some indications of economic sort of feasibility. And then you would get down to the junior companies, which are more speculative in nature. They've got a lot of blue sky uh, potential vis-a-vis drilling results that they've announced. They tend to be cheaper. The risk-reward ratio is obviously better, but uh, I don't think we're quite yet with those more junior sort of situations. I do sense that we're going to see some action with the companies that have gold resources in the ground and are at feasibility or close to it, really. Let's talk about the company that you're involved with, Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation. You're the co-founder of JS Mindsight with Jim Sinclair. Where does Tanzanian Royalty fall in the equation you just outlined? Well, we do have an 
advanced uh, stage gold project in Tanzania, the Buck Reef project. This thing has got just absolutely tremendous blue sky potential. We're drilling off some of these previously established zones at Buck Reef. We're getting some absolute real joy in our drilling program. We're seeing some depth potential at Buck Reef, which was never completely evaluated in the past. I just think we're on the uh, verge of something quite sort of significant. And, you know, we have released information publicly. It's all sort of on the public record, the results that we are getting. And, you know, we've got more to come in the coming months. And uh, we've got the working capital of approximately $30 million to uh, develop Buck Reef through uh, full feasibility and to drill the uh, project off and build our resource base. So we have over 2.1 million ounces right at the moment. I'm quite optimistic that over the next two years, we can grow that resource to three to five million ounces. You know, if we're lucky, it could be even higher than that. The fact is there aren't really too many advanced stage projects like this around. There's been over a million feet of drilling done in this thing by previous operators. The metallurgy is known. There's no permitting risk whatsoever. We recently received our permit from the Tanzanian government, our mining permit for the entire property. As I mentioned, the expiration potential, you know, in an upside sort of context is great. You know, the more resources, the better, obviously, really, because mining is very much about economies of scale. And the more gold you produce, the cheaper you can produce it at. The ore body at Buck Reef is near surface. It's between 40 and 60 meters from surface. It's oxide-type material. We can start off as a heap leach operation and go to a more conventional, what they call carbon and leach operation, which involves crushing and grinding. So there are all kinds of options open to us to develop this project on an incremental basis, which would allow us to keep costs down and develop the mine further from cash flows from smaller-scale sort of production. The feasibility study that will be completed later this year will determine the production rate, the exact time frame for commercial production, and we'll have a better handle on what options are open to us at that point. And one of the reasons for your success in Tanzania, I understand, after discussing this with Jim at quite some length a while back is that you're not a colonial miner and a lot of the industry is colonial in what they do. They bring their own people, they take the assets out of the country and nothing's given back to the community. Your relationship building at every level seems to have paid off in Tanzania. Well, Jim is very sensitive to the uh, aspirations of Tanzanians, and he's really quite remarkable in that sense. In a lot of cases, I think mining companies have tend to run roughshod over countries, especially these developing countries that they've been operating in. And the fact is, in this day and age, you really just can't do that. And it's just not appropriate that you know, it was never appropriate that companies sort of acted like that. We have a wonderful relationship with the government. The State Mining Corporation of Tanzania is our partner in the Buck Reef project. On top of that, you know, we have programs in place that involve educating Tanzanians in, you know, different mining uh, exploration sort of practices. So we are putting something back into the community, you know, as this project sort of evolves. And when we achieve commercial production, we'll be able to do even more. And Jim has a mandate to get that going as soon as feasibly possible. Well, we have a production commitment actually to the Tanzanian government to achieve commercial production within 30 months at Buckery. So we're in roughly about a month and a bit to our agreement. So say we've got roughly about 28, 29 months to go. We don't see any problem reaching commercial production within that time frame. And part of it relates to the fact that there's next to no permitting risk 
risk on this project at all. If you were to permit a project like this in other parts of the world, you know, we've jumped through all the hoops already. I guess I should probably clarify that. This project has been studied for quite some time, probably about a, a decade. A lot of the metallurgical test work has been done. A lot of the filings have been done with the government. So from a permitting standpoint, there are just a few items that remain to be finalized and approved by the government, really. Yeah, we don't really see uh, any problem maintaining this time frame and achieving commercial production on the basis that we've announced publicly. Well, David, it's been a pleasure meeting with you and having this conversation. I look forward to more conversations like this during the coming months throughout 2012. I've been speaking with David Duvall, Special Advisor to James Sinclair, the President of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, also the co-founder of JSMindsight.com. David, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Ellis Martin Report today at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. It's been great to uh, be with you, Ellis, and I wish everybody good luck in the gold market. Cheers to that. Thank you. Ian Chalmers is the Managing Director of a company with a market cap of nearly $650 million dollars with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper in New South Wales, Australia. Alkane Resources trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ANLKY. That's ANLKY. The Alkane story has been a compelling one, reflecting the success of their Dubbo Zirconia project and the international market for zirconium and rare metal resources. Ian, welcome back to the program. Thank you. You issued a release noting that you signed a deed of agreement with New South Wales Development of Trade and Investment Regional Infrastructure and Services to receive financial assistance for infrastructure for the development of your wholly owned subsidiary, the Tom Lee Gold Project. You'll be receiving some financial assistance to develop this project. Uh, yes, it's quite an unusual event, I'm sure, anywhere in the world to get government assistance these days to develop resource projects. But uh, yes, our local state government has come in to help us out with some infrastructure, mainly the the water supply and power supply to the Tomingley Gold Project. It's a good result because it's a win-win for both us and the local community because the water and the power will ultimately be used for the, for the little tiny village of Tomingley to help maintain its standards there, so it's a good result. It's certainly nice to have state participation in encouraging development of commerce, especially the mining industry in New South Wales. Fortunately, the state government does have a strong policy of trying to assist regional development. In other words, get development in the state outside of the sort of main metropolitan areas, and this is a good step forward. I mean, although Dubbo itself is quite a sizable city nearby to us, some of the other smaller towns and little tiny towns like Tamingley need all the help they can get. So in this case, by helping us to build the gold project on the Tamingley doorstep, but also leave a legacy long-term of a decent water supply to the town and a, and a decent electricity supply. It's a good result, and we certainly encourage the state government to keep doing these sorts of projects. When do you expect to produce gold and generate revenue at Tomlingley? At this stage, it looks like it'll be early 2013. We're still awaiting the final development approval from the state government. That's obviously a different department from the one that's just put its hand in its pocket to help out. So we're the planning department that we're estimating will have approval. And then it's about 12-month constructing time to build the plant and get it up and running. So realistically, late 2012, early 2013. So you expect to be a gold producer in relatively short order? Yes, yeah, sure. It's a modest-sized project, but it does generate substantial 
substantial returns. It'll, it'll generate 30 to $40 million a year, certainly past our base case of seven and a half years out to 10 years. And it's a project that we can build on, and that's always been the strategy. Look, start off relatively modest, but we think over time we can extend out its life. There are other synergies in the regions. Obviously, things like the, the Dubbo Zirconia project, there's a long-term synergy there that we can use the gold development at Tommingley also. Well, there's nothing modest about the Dubbo Zirconia project, is there? No, true. It's a world-class project and certainly uh, heading in the right direction. Everything we've done in the last uh, two or three years has certainly progressed towards that development. What can you tell us about progress with Dubbo? I guess many things are going on. We did complete the feasibility study back in September. I think we've, you and I have talked about that already. But it certainly showed what a robust project it is, even using very conservative revenue stream. Uh, and I think the other thing that you know we like to stress with the project is that two components of it, the zirconium and the heavy rare earth output, really are very strategically important in the whole world sense. I mean, the project will be one of the more significant non-Chinese producers of both of those commodities. Unfortunately, we also have the Niobium and the Light Rare Earth Output, which help the revenue stream. But it all adds up to making it a very, very good project. And then going forward from here, we've got MOUs. We've got all the zirconium output tied up under MOU now. We're very close to finalising a Niobium MOU. And then the rare earths, and certainly the rare earths are very interesting stage. It's a lot more complicated to put in the right sort of deal in place for that. Uh, but I hope that sometime early in the new year we'll have that in place as well. So a lot of things going on. Should have the environmental assessment work done. Then, of course, that goes into the state government for the approvals process. So we're still on target to have production in 2014, but it will depend a little bit on the state's attitude as to how quickly they can proceed the, the approvals process. You already have at least three offtake agreements that I'm aware of before you even go into production. Not too many companies can make that claim. That's very true, and certainly uh, that's very important. I mean, in fact, it, I mean, it sounds a bit silly, but uh, we actually right now would probably have 120%, 130% of our zirconium output potentially sold, and that's because one of the MOUs is not restricted to any particular tonnage or volume. It's very open-ended at this stage, and with strong markets into both Europe and North America. So it's a good place to be with the zirconium, and it's always governed the size of the project. I mean, the, the more zirconium we can sell the bigger the project can be but the others have said like the Niobium very close to being finalised and then the rare earths we're working on a slightly different concept with the rare earths rather than just sell the two concentrates as they are we're sort of targeting a joint venture with existing separation facilities whereby we can participate in the upside of that the separation to produce the individual rare earth oxide so there's quite a fair amount of work involved in putting that together to get it to a status where you could say yes we have a, a genuine deal in place. Now, some would say that you have a fairly decent share price near $11 a share, but the reality is the sector has taken quite a hit, and your company has too with all that you have going. You might say that your company stock is tremendously undervalued, and it could be a good place to get in, possibly. I agree. Absolutely correct. The whole sector's been unmercifully belted, is probably the words that I'd use. And some of it's been quite misinformed. I think there's been some reports about, you know, I've seen things like rare earth market collapses, rare earth prices collapse. And realistically, that's a long way from the truth. Certainly, the two big bulk volume rare earths like Lanthanum and Cerium have dropped in price, but they're certainly still way above levels that they were at the beginning 
beginning of this year. So we haven't seen a collapse. And it's just very frustrating when you see media reports that talk about that. And of course, what happens is that permeates through the whole industry and we all cop it. But going back to Alkane, certainly, I guess proportionately, we have been hit, probably not quite as hard as some. But that markdown does not reflect all the assets inside the company and where we are in terms of our development profile and doesn't reflect the gold, doesn't reflect the very large resource we've got in joint venture with Newmont, which you know hopefully will get developed sometime in the next few years. So yeah, we've certainly been belted, I suppose, is a good word. Again, you have a non-commercial pilot plant where you're testing your production capabilities, and many other companies have yet to complete their feasibility studies and don't have their infrastructure laid out. I don't see why potential investors shouldn't continue to take a look at Alcane now as an investment possibility. Again, I have to agree with you. Uh, certainly the pilot plant from both the chemical engineering component and the marketing side of it's been extremely important. And then really, um, all projects have to go through this pilot plant at some stage. You can't ultimately get to the point where you can be guaranteed a sign-off on your project on its viability before you've done that, before you get products out to the marketplace. Because all these products are different. Each process produces a slightly different product. And then, of course, the end users have got to be able to add that product to their particular application. So... Uh, obviously, if you can't sell the material, you don't really have a very good project, and uh, it's, it is an important part. And again, it's something that we deliberately set out to do 2005, 2006, and then had the plant running at 2008. It's still running today. We'll operate it through just on product development, improving the quality of our products, changing the mix, working on different ideas, improving recoveries, and all of those sort of things, which, again, the only way you can do that is by a fully operating pilot plant. And, of course, you're trading in the U.S., which is a huge asset. Yes, it is. It's been an interesting exercise, and certainly it's something that we'd like to push further and like to develop further. And it's just, again, it's sort of slow penetrating into the North American market. It always is from Australian, from an Australian perspective. I mean, we're on the other side of the world. We're in a very different time zone. But we certainly are making some progress with that listing. Ian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks very much, Alice. A pleasure as usual. I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, president of Alkane Resource under the symbol A-N-L-K-Y. That's A-N-L-K-Y. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Drever, the president of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Their flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena mine, which is located northeast of Hermosillo in the prolific state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. The company anticipates that the 2,500 tons per day facility should produce an average of approximately 800,000 ounces of silver and 30,000 ounces of gold per full production year from the open pit heap leach operation. I'm Ellis Martin, today reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm up here with the president of Silvercrest Mines, that's Scott Drever. How are you? I'm really well, Allison. Now, you've had some developments with respect to La Jolla that you alluded to when we spoke last in December. What's been happening in La Jolla? Well, I think in December when we spoke, we were in the midst of doing a resource calculation for La Jolla, our initial resource. We got that work done, and we did the release, at least the press release, on the summary results of that, which showed that we have 109 million ounces of silver equivalent 
equivalence in an inferred category. That's a game changer, I'd like to say. Maybe you're not saying it, but it's a definitely a game changer. And uh, what's the next step with regard to La Jolla then? Certainly, I think your words are reasonably well chosen. It's, it's significant for us, and it has the earmarks of being significant in the mining industry. We, of course, tested only a small portion of the potential area with that result of uh, 109 million ounces of silver equivalent. And uh, we are anxious, of course, to uh, look at the remainder of the potential area. And so we've embarked on a um, an 80-hole program. We have one drill rig that has been running there since early December, and we have two more drill rigs lined up to go in here shortly. Now, I should review for those that are hearing about your company for the first time that you're a producer in the silver and the gold space with regard to your flagship project, Santa Elena. That project is financing a lot of your present and future operations, isn't it? Yes, it is. We started the uh, Santa Elena mine last year. We've reached pretty much steady state. It's an open pit heap leach operation that last year on a, on a partial production year we produced, I think it was 20, almost 27,000 ounces of gold and about 430,000 ounces of silver. So that is providing us with a nice stable uh, cash flow platform that will enable us to uh, do the expansion plan that we have on tap at Santa Elena to uh, double the production over the next three years and allow us to do aggressive uh, exploration work on a project like La Jolla. Now, you really weren't affected at all, at least not drastically. You saw some share price growth. I believe the value of your stock increased by about 35 to 40 percent during October, November, uh, pulled back just a little bit in November. Compared to your peers, that's a tremendous growth. But what do you think is responsible for that? Well, I think it's uh, just a progression of things and us doing what we said we would do. We said we would be in production uh, on time and on budget, and we were. We said our production would be a certain number of ounces, and we're hitting those targets. So those things are online, and that helps, of course, if you have cash flow that you don't have to go back to the equity markets, then, of course, that helps stabilize your price, I think, as well. Now, you had a couple of research analyst reports that have come out within the last year or so that had your share price value at double what it is now within the next 12 to 16 months, but that valuation was done before this latest report. Do you think that will change? Yeah, the two uh, analysts that have put out reports on us, one is Stuart McDougall out of Jennings in Toronto, and the other is Nick Campbell out of uh, Canaccord Genuity here in Vancouver. As you say, they've both picked target numbers that are about double our $2.25 share price at the moment, and I would encourage your, your listeners to uh, check with those particular uh, companies to to look at those reports. They did include some minor values, I think, for the La Jolla. And as we move forward, of course, those will probably change upwards as we go forward. Now, you're fairly tightly held, too. We don't have 250, 300 million shares out there, do we? Our outstanding and issued right now at the moment is about 87.5 million, I think. Fully diluted, we're just under 100 million, which compared to a lot of companies, as you point out, is not a lot. And over the course of the past few months, I haven't seen a lot of hostile activity either related to your stock. Hostile in that you mean uh, selling off of the stock? No, it it looks like some accumulation going on and obviously we're bumping around our all-time highs. So if we can establish that base uh, above $2, uh, then that gives us a real nice platform to move uh, upwards from their pending uh, positive results from uh, Santa Elena and La Jolla. Now one of the analysts I interview is David Morgan and he has silver hitting $60 announced sometime during this year, 2020. 
2012, of course, that can't be bad news for your company. It's got to be good news if, in fact, that does happen. Yeah, I know David, and I've interviewed with him a couple of times, and his $60 number isn't outside of my belief system. I think probably a base of, of $29 for silver is, is pretty decent. I don't anticipate it being at 60 and staying there. Uh, I would think probably, you know, overall an average of 40 45 somewhere there. But to hit 60 wouldn't surprise me a bit. Can I ask you what the cost of production per ounce is for Silvercrest? We're still in a bit of a ramp-up mode here. We're almost to steady state where we can put a hard number on those. But our last year numbers are up until the third quarter of last year. We were seeing something in the order of 750 an ounce of uh, silver equivalent. So we've got very, very good margins at Santa Elena. What are you going to be doing during the next 12 months? We've started on, a, on an expansion program, as I mentioned, uh, at Santa Elena. That entails putting in a conventional mill. We're doing underground development. Uh, we started the decline here last week and that'll be going through 2012. We're doing a pre-feasibility study on a satellite deposit Cruz de Mayo. Of course we're going to be very aggressive on uh, La Jolla to uh, turn around a second resource estimate after we finish this 80-hole program. I've been speaking with the president of Silvercrest Mines, Scott Drever. Again, Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX easily found. Just type in STVZF from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Scott Drever, thanks for joining us today. Find a link to the Silvercrest website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Neil Ringdahl, the president of Apogee Silver Limited, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. Apogee Silver is a dynamic Toronto-based junior exploration and development company with a strategic focus on advanced stage silver, zinc, and lead deposits in world-class mineral districts in South America. Apogee's primary focus is the Pulacayo Paca property, located in southwestern Bolivia. Apogee has been advancing the property since 2006 through a joint venture agreement with Golden Minerals Company. Apogee is also exploring the Cachinal Silver property, located in northern Chile. Apogee has a recent share price of $0.18, cents and is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Neil, welcome back to the program. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Ellis, and thank you very much for having me on the program. Give us an update on Apogee Silver. Well, we've commenced our trial mining since uh, we last spoke, and the guys are still busy with development. We should start opening up the first uh, couple of stubs in the next month or two. It's very exciting. We've been re- receiving really, really good grades. I'd love to be able to disclose what they are, but we're just doing our checks and balances and making sure that the numbers are correct. It's very exciting news and certainly very pleasing to have better than expected results. You recently disclosed on December 20th two drill hole results, 515 grams per ton of silver at one and 462.9 grams per ton at another. That's fairly significant. Yeah, those are individual drill hole results, and obviously you can't take that on their own, but, you know, there's other drill holes that you've got to take them into account with. But they're certainly indicative of a very prospective resource, and, you know, we're certainly seeing sort of comparable numbers in the underground. The question is how much dilution are we going to get and so on, and that's why we're busy with the trial mining program, to firm up on those numbers to see what we're going to get out. You know, we should start, once we've built up a little stockpile, we will start uh, custom toll milling, and that will provide us with a uh, useful information for just confirmatory on our plant design, which we're finalizing as well right now. You know, that really sets the scene for us to take the company to the next stage, which is to put the mine into production and start producing the silver commercially 
from within Bolivia. Is there any way to pin down the timeline on that? Very much depends on how our permitting process goes with the permitting of a plant. I think uh, I might have mentioned to you before that we had a permit for mining and custom tool milling for up to 200 tons per day. And we're currently in the process of obtaining a second permit for a 400 ton per day processing facility at the site. That involves a number of stakeholders and a number of processes. And we're in the middle of that. And so we're expecting to receive you know, an environmental permit in the second quarter of this year. And from there, we will go straight into construction and hopefully have a plant in commercial production early in 2013. Well, that's just over a year away. It's a very prolific part of Latin America, and you have a unique arrangement with the government and the people in Bolivia. That's right. I think most of the companies that are operating in Bolivia have gone the extra mile to working with the local communities in that, but we enjoy special support from the local community in that the mine is a historical mine. It produced, uh, you know, 9 million ounces for 75 years before it was uh, closed down in 1952. So the local people were very, very excited to see the mine come back into production again. It's going to, you know, receive some of its former glory that it will regain some of its former glory that it had before. So we've seen a lot of support from that point of view. And we've also gone the extra mile in terms of making sure that we employ guys local to the area and we're training up the people local to the area into more skilled positions as well, as opposed to getting in contractors and so on. And that's important because, you know, if you don't invest in the people in the area, then uh, they don't buy into the project. And you need to have that in this day and age. You can't expect to just, you know, build a clinic and expect the guys to be happy with that. You've got to go the extra mile and make sure that they see the benefits of any development in their particular, you know, zone of influence or the mine, you know. What kind of job pool of experienced miners is available locally? That's the trouble. We were, you know, hoping to find a large number of skilled people, but it seems that that's not the case. So we find that a lot of the, you know, we're going through a fairly steep learning curve with the guys we've employed, training them up from scratch. You know, they're new to mining. They're young people. Their grandfathers did the mining. Many of them are not around anymore. So we're having to start from the beginning again. We've got the patience for that, and I think it's important to have the patience for that because it'll pay the dividends in the medium term. What we're doing is we're uh, complementing the local force with a few skilled professionals. We've got a multinational management team, Bolivians. We have Peruvians, South Africans. We have Canadians on our team. You know, these guys all work together in expatriate environments, if you like, and have the experience of dealing with workforces that are perhaps not as skilled as we'd like to, but they also have the skills of training them up and getting them up to a level that's of a world-class standard. I recently interviewed David Morgan, and he's forecasting a $60 an ounce price point for silver before the end of this year. If that's the case, that may double the value of whatever resource you'll be reporting from where silver sits today. That's right. I mean, your cutoff grade drops significantly if the metal prices go up. Our life of mine plan is based on a very conservative, you know, $22 silver price, which is, you know, the kind of engineering way of looking at it. If you put in a $60 silver price, you know, that kind of, I would say, doubles your return on investment, definitely. And it also doubles the resource size. If you want to mine a larger resource, you can look at a completely different uh, scenario, maybe bringing in some more lower-grade tons and, you know, expanding the mine going forward to capitalize on the increased total number of ounces that we have in the resource. For me, it's, it's really exciting because it immediately drives, you know, the revenue number. And if you've got a cost per ounce of 9 or $10 per ounce as a mining cost, you know, maybe 12 or $13, 12 to $15 for a total cost of, to company, and you have a revenue or a price of $60 silver, that's, that's a significant profit margin, isn't it? It certainly is. Neil, as always, it's been great to catch up with you. I look forward to some potentially exciting news for Apogee Silver. 
coming up next time we speak, hopefully. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Alice. I've been speaking with the president of Apogee Silver, Neil Ringdahl. Apogee trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced staged gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, TanzanianRoyalty.com. That's TanzanianRoyalty.com. Dudley Baker is the editor of PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. In March 2005, he founded and launched a new investment market data service, Precious Metals Warrants, which provides detail on all mining and energy company warrants trading on the U.S. and Canadian exchanges. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Dudley, welcome back to the program. Good to be here, Ellis. Many of our listeners are wondering how to proceed in the market. Your thoughts? Well, you know, I like to use the analogy of the elevator. Let's say you've just walked into the lobby of an office building. Obviously, you want to go up, you know, as we think gold is going to go up and and our resource stocks are going to go up. The door opens to the elevator, and you don't see an arrow. Is it going up? Is it going down? Well, you go ahead and you get in. Well, the elevator actually ends up going down. And, and, you know, all of us will say, ah, damn, you know. But so what? So we're only going to go down one or two levels. Maybe there's a parking garage down or whatever. But we know it's going to happen, right? The elevator is going to come right back up, and it's going up. So I like to use that now with an analogy for these markets. Yes, if we step in today, we think everything could go up and blast off from right here. But what if we're wrong? What if this elevator, short term, is going to go down on us? But we know it's going to come back up and go back up, and we're going to reach the heights that we deem are coming in gold and silver and resource stocks, you know, I mean, much, much higher than they are uh, today and have ever been. So I think we just have to have, you know, take a deep breath here. Again, patience, patience, patience. I keep preaching this. But this is why we need core positions. If you're not in the market now, you've got to establish some core positions and a, a lot of companies that you're comfortable with. And this is what we provide you with in our services. There's a lot of alternatives so where you can put your investment dollars. If something happens, if this elevator goes down on us first, save some cash and redeploy that cash maybe at lower levels. Again, we are long-term bullish. The short-term stuff, it's pretty tough to figure out. The best investing is done with patience, with an eye for the long-term then. Well, that's the way that I've always approached these markets. And my subscribers know we have no intention of being traders. We are not into the short-term stuff. I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, maybe next month. You know, looking out over the horizon for a year, a couple of years, we are extremely bullish. And we just think that everybody really needs to you know, share that viewpoint, especially our followers, because we just have no intention of the short-term stuff. It doesn't excite us. And most people are not good at it. It's a totally different game. So we are really long-term investors. Take some patience. 
you step in here, a lot of the companies that we follow are relatively low-priced companies, a lot of them less than 10 cents. But we're in there for a reason, because we see something. A lot of these little companies, percentage-wise, are up 50 to 100% off their bottom already, and that's pretty cool. But it's all about patients developing core positions and waiting for the markets to come to us. What is the risk factor when you're investing in a super cheap company like that? You know, number one, we invariably are looking at the management. Who is the management? What is their track record? Does the company have some cash in the bank so they don't have to run out and do another private placement at these ridiculously low prices, you know, the share prices? It's pretty tough if the stock is, you know, 10 cents or less and you need to raise a substantial amount of money. It's just incredible dilution, and we really don't want to be part of that situation. We're also religiously following the insider transactions on all of the companies that we're involved with. And so we feel good if we know the insiders have a substantial position or are continuing to buy in our companies. It gives us a much greater degree of confidence, okay? Even though the share price is less than 10 cents, it gives us that added confidence that we need to to stay the course. And right now, we're starting to notice some pretty good volume and upside activity on some of the very, very small uranium companies, many of which are selling for less than 10 cents. What's this all about? I have no idea. We're on board, and subscribers know we're on board with these companies. So we love to just take a nice position and wait, and we're going to have some great gains down the road. Let's face it, as everybody says, I mean, the secret to making money is what? you got to buy low, and you got to sell high. Well, when we're buying, let's say, below $0.10, cents, I've got to believe we're buying <laughs> about as low as you can possibly get. If we've got some good management, maybe insider activity, some cash in the bank, we are comfortable with waiting and let those markets come to us. Follow Dudley Baker and his picks by subscribing to his website and his service, PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. That's PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Dudley, thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks, Ellis. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.